The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Uh, we're going to spend some time in God's Word, and we are in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 10, Luke 10. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can open up there. If you have our app, you can just click read, and it'll pull up to Luke 10. Uh, and if not, we got the big one up here. Luke 10 says this, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. And greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is God's word for us today. So we are uh, in the midst of, uh, of Lent right now, and, and Lent is this, this season that uh, uh, Christians have celebrated for centuries, uh, where it's these 40 days uh, leading up to Easter, and it's these 40 days where we take time to, to repent of our sin, to, to maybe fast from something, some of you maybe are doing that, uh, and to really just reflect on what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in the empty tomb. And so as we're in this series, uh, or as we're in this season, we're in this series called His Father, Our Father. By the way, if you were with us last week, I said our, our graphic was terrible. Boom. Upgraded, right? Isn't it? Much better. 
Okay, anyways, um, <laughs> by the way, so Tanner's like, do you really want me to take that out of the podcast? Because the guy who made it is going to listen. I was like, nope, he needs to know. So anyways, um, at any rate, so, so we are in this series, His Father, Our Father. We're looking at the doctrine of God. Like, like who is God? What are his attributes? What's he made of? What's his nature like? How's, how does God work? So we're looking at the doctrine of God, but in particular, we're looking at it through the lens of the Lord's Prayer. And then to add one more layer to it, we're saying we're not just going to look at the, the Lord's Prayer. We're going to say, how is that embodied in the life of Jesus? Okay, and so last week we looked at our Father in heaven, and we looked at how, how God's uh, fatherhood is embodied as Jesus began his ministry. And this week we're looking at this text uh, where we're going to look at, at God's kingdom coming, God's rule and his reign happening in this world uh, as we see Jesus send out his followers on mission. All right? And so let's get into it. Um, I read an article in the New Yorker this past week. I know. Pretty impressive. And, um, and, uh, and it was titled, Why Facts Don't Change Our Mind. Why Facts Don't Change Our Mind. Uh, and, and in this article, the, the, the author Elizabeth Colbert explores why, even though you know, we're, we're rational creatures, right? We're, we're reasonable people. Uh, she explores why pure reason doesn't always win the day for us, does it? In fact, oftentimes... Pure reason doesn't win the day for us. Uh, and so as she explores this concept, she, she cites several psychological studies. Uh, but one of them that stood out, stood out to me was this one that, that took place at Stanford University. And what happened was uh, these, these psychological researchers, uh, they brought in two groups of people. And one group of, of people was pro-death penalty because they believed it deterred crime. And another group of people that was brought in was anti-death penalty, and they didn't believe it deterred crime. And then they gave two studies to both of these groups. And, and one study uh, said, yep, sure enough, capital punishment does deter crime. And the other study called that conclusion into question and said, we're not so sure that it deters crime. And so they gave both studies to both groups. And so, so both groups read the studies. Oh, by the way, both studies were completely made up. Okay, so they're not real, but, but neither one of the groups knew this. Neither one of the groups knew this. And so they read these studies, assuming that they're accurate, and both studies were designed to be objective and to just show equally compelling statistics. And guess what? The people that came to the study uh, already in favor of the death penalty, they said, hey, that study that says that it doesn't deter crime, there's a lot of faulty research with that. I don't really trust those numbers. I'm not sure that's accurate. And then the people that opposed the death penalty, they said, hey, the one that said that the death penalty uh, deters crime, there seemed to be a lot of faulty research with that. I don't really trust those numbers. I don't think it was accurate. So they both still, and, and so, so in fact, both sides, after looking at these studies, were more entrenched in their preconceived views post-reading the studies than they were pre-reading the studies. Right? Now this is what we call confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, Right? That, that we have this tendency to embrace information that supports our beliefs and reject information that contradicts them. It's confirmation bias. We, we embrace information that supports our beliefs and reject information that contradicts them. And we all do this. Everybody does this. Don't think you're exempt from this. We all do this to a certain degree. We just do. And what we see actually happen in our text is this confirmation, take pla confirmation bias take place 2,000 years ago. Because what happens is Jesus sends out his 72 followers and they have the best message. They got the best information in the world. 
They're announcing the kingdom of God is near, that God's healing rule and reign is present amongst them in the person of Jesus Christ, that the sick are being healed, that demons are being cast out, that new life is being offered to people. And yet, we see in this text that many people reject this message. Why? Confirmation bias. The message that Jesus sends with his disciples doesn't line up with what they expect. It doesn't line up with what they want to be true. And see, the reality is this can happen to us too. We're going to look at what's called the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. And the second petition of the Lord's Prayer are just these words. Thy kingdom come. Three words. Thy kingdom come. And to put it succinctly, ish. Uh, When we pray thy kingdom come, we're asking that God's kingdom, his rule, his reign, his way of doing things in this world, we're asking that that would happen in our lives and in our midst. That his way of doing things would happen in my life and in our lives and the way that that we live. That, That he would have priority among us. But if you're like me, I say that, and there's almost like this visceral response that happens inside of me that just says, whoa, whoa, whoa. His rule? His reign? His kingdom? His way? No, 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 no. I'm captain of my own ship, baby. I steer where I'm going to go. He's not telling me what to do. Right? Like, Like we just have this confirmation bias like inherent in us as human beings. It's just innate. And so the reality is if we're actually going to live into God's kingdom, if we're actually going to see it break through in our lives, His Spirit is going to have to cut through a lot of walls that we've built up. And fortunately, what we see in our text is that that's exactly what his spirit does. That through his message and through his power and through his joy, God's kingdom can come among us. That's what we're going to see, that God's kingdom breaks into our lives through his message, through his power, and through his joy. All right, so let's check it out. Let's look at the message. Look with me at verses 1 to 5 in our text. It says this, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag. No knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. All right, so if we go back to the first verse, uh, we see that Jesus, he sends out 72 of his followers, right? And everyone gets really excited about the number 70. Ooh, numbers in the Bible, right? So what's, what's, uh, what's, what's the 72? What's the significance of the 72? Why does he send out 72 people? It's an odd number. Oh, well, it's actually an even number, but, it, but it's strange. And um, now... What's it about? Well, the short answer is I don't know exactly because Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly. Uh, but amongst the scholarship, there's there kind of two general views that are kind of tossed around. And the first view is this, that Jesus sends 72 out because there's 72 Gentile nations, that is non-Jewish nations, surrounding the nation of Israel. And so Jesus is expanding the scope of his mission by sending people into uh, non-Jewish nations, into the Gentile nation to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's one option. Uh, the other option that scholars talk about is that, that Luke is showing us, the gospel writer Luke, is showing us Jesus as the new Moses. 
uh, who's, who's leading a greater and newer exodus. And that's, uh, that Moses, at one point in Numbers 10, appoints 70 elders. And actually, oddly enough, like two guys are like, we're going to do it too. And so it's like 70 that turns into two. It's a really funny story. Uh, Numbers 10, if you want to read it. Anyways, uh, and he appoints them to serve as leaders in the original exodus. And so this is Luke showing us that, that Jesus is, is the leader of a newer and greater exodus, that he's a better and newer Moses. The reality is, it doesn't really matter which way you want to read it. Because the bottom line in this text is this, is that, that Jesus is on mission, and he's sending others on mission. He's on mission, he's sending others on mission, and that their mission has a message. And what's the message that Jesus tells them? And if you'd go to verse 5 for me. Verse 5, what's the first thing they're supposed to do? When, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. So the first part of their message is, peace be to you. And then there's another part to it. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And so here Jesus says, verse 8, he says, hey, eat whatever's placed in front of you. Sit with whoever you can. Now, many of you know this, but, but the Jewish folks had very strict dietary laws. And they had very strict rules and regulations about who they could and could not eat with. That they were not meant to sit with Gentiles, with non-Jews. They're not meant to share food with them. And Jesus says, hey, no, 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 we're getting rid of that. That's not going to apply anymore. I want you to eat whatever food's set in front of you. I want, to sit, I want you to sit down with whoever you can sit down with. See, Jesus is telling his followers, he's saying, I want you to embody reconciliation. I want you to embody reconciliation between racial and ethnic and nationalistic backgrounds. You sit down with whoever you can. You eat food with whoever you can. And then, so the message is peace. It's reconciliation. And then verse 9, we see it's healing. And it's the presence of God's kingdom. And so Jesus' message of his followers is he says, go out, proclaim peace and reconciliation and healing and announce the presence of my kingdom. Peace, reconciliation, healing, the presence of the kingdom of God. It's an awesome message. And yet, some people reject it. Why do they do that? confirmation bias. And so Jesus has strong words in our text for those that reject his message. Look with me at verses 13 to 15. Jesus is speaking. He says this, Woe to you, Chorazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Right? We read that text, and typically, man, we like to think of Jesus. We got the image of Jesus in our head, just kind of hugging everyone, kumbaya, petting sheep, doing that thing. But he throws the gauntlet down here, right? He just lays down the law. What's going on? What's this about? Well, a uh, man who I believe is the, the best New Testament scholar in the world right now is a guy named N.T. Wright. And uh, I read his commentary on this text, and this is what he says is going on here. It's really long. Just hang with me, all right? He says this. To refuse this message would mean courting the disaster of going the opposite way from God himself. And that would mean, as always, 
throwing oneself into the hands of pagan power. The judgment that would fall on Chorazan and Bethsaida in central Galilee and on Jesus' own town of Capernaum would be more terrible than that suffered by the wicked cities of the Old Testament. But it would not consist of fire falling from heaven. It would take the form of Roman invasion and destruction. Rome's punishment for rebel subjects would be the direct result of God's people turning away from God's way of peace. And so Wright's point here, what he's saying, is is that those who rejected Jesus' message of peace, of reconciliation, of healing, of the presence of God's kingdom, they rejected it because it wasn't what they wanted. They rejected it because it didn't confirm their confirmation bias. See, the folks that heard this message and rejected it, they, they wanted God's kingdom to come. They wanted his reign to come, but they wanted it to happen the way they wanted it to. Which meant that he would raise up their nation, the nation of Israel, to crush Rome. And that they'd be the kings. And they'd be in charge. And so they didn't like Jesus' way of doing it. And so many years, we have, I mean, there's history of this, about 70 A.D., About 50 years after Jesus extends this message to them, they do try to establish God's kingdom on their own. And they do try to rebel against Rome. And the empire crushes them, and those cities are laid waste by the Roman Empire. And see, the the, the point here is this. There is a very practical judgment to rejecting God's kingdom reign in your life. There's a very practical judgment to rejecting God's kingdom reign in your life. And see, this is our story too. This is our story too. Here's a, a really shallow illustration. Uh, the other day, uh, my daughter, who's, who's two, uh, was playing her memory game on her little table. And so she's got her little table there. And she's playing her memory game. She's got all the memory cards laid out. And she's just doing her thing. And then all of a sudden, uh, as two-year-olds do... Uh, she just decided to go like this, right? And just like wave her arms all around and throw all the cards flying everywhere. And as soon as she sent those cards spinning around the room, she goes, oh no, my cards. This is our story too. See, man, so often, like, like we know what the right thing to do is. We know what God's will in our life would look like. We know what it would look like to live into his kingdom, to live into his way of doing things. And we say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. That sounds hard. And we reject it. And the end is always destruction. And we're left saying, oh no, my cards. Right? I know if I were to look back on some of the deepest wounds in my life, some of the poorest places that I've been in, so often it's because I've rejected what it is to live into God's kingdom. Because I've rejected what it is to live into his healing rule and reign. And so this is why, if, if any of you have ever sat down with me maybe for counsel and you've said, hey, I've got this kind of moral gray area in my life or I'm trying to make this big decision, uh, really the first question I always ask you is this. I say, what's your telos? What's your telos? And telos is the, the Greek word for goal or end goal, and it's, it's used in, in philosophy uh, to mean like something you're striving for, whatever you're aiming towards in life. It's like the ultimate end. And so I always ask people, what's, what's your telos as you're trying to navigate life? And see, the reason I always ask that is because if your telos is anything but God's kingdom, if your telos is anything but God's healing, rule, and reign taking place in your life and taking place in this world, it will inevitably end in destruction. It just does. It's the only ultimate end there can be. There's a satirical website 
uh, that sort of comments on American church culture called the Babylon Bee. Have you guys ever heard of this? Okay, good. It's really good. It's super funny. And, uh, and one of their recent headlines was this. Congregation sees Pastor C.S. Lewis quote coming from a mile away. Uh, <laughs> and that headline is about to be true. Um, so... <laughs> But I can't, re- I, just, I can't resist. It's like he taps into this idea so brilliantly. So let me just share what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us. Invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel for our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. And so Jesus says, woe to Chorazan, woe to Bethsaida, woe to Capernaum, and woe to each one of us if we seek to live into any other reality but God's kingdom reign in our life. And so let me encourage you, grab hold of Jesus' message of peace, of reconciliation, of healing of God's kingdom presence in your life. It's what you're made for. But not only is it what you're made for, what we see in this text is that there's actually, there's power there. There's power there. Check out what happens next. Uh, Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. All right, so the 72, they come back to Jesus, and they're all excited because they've been slaying demons, which is awesome. Uh, and And then Jesus says, hey, while you guys were out doing kingdom work, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now that language is maybe a little strange to us. Because the reality is we don't talk about this that much in the modern Western church. But the reality is this, there there is a spiritual realm. There is a spiritual realm. And there are real spiritual powers of darkness. And if you have a hard time believing that, if you're like, okay, weirdo, if you have a hard time with that, let me just challenge you to not let your confirmation bias become cultural snobbery, okay? The only reason we don't see this stuff as often is because we live in the modern West. Don't let your confirmation bias become cultural snobbery. Talk to anyone who spent time working in the global South. They see this stuff 
all the time. It's real. It's very real. We just don't focus on it a lot in the modern West because as the saying goes, you guys know this, especially if you've seen uh, Usual Suspects, uh, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Right? But he does. What's amazing in this text is that Jesus says that, that we as his followers, as those who know him, as those who've been brought into God's kingdom, that we have power over him. That there's, there's no darkness that can hold us back. There's nothing that can stand in the way of God working through his people. That there's nothing so evil in this world that God can't use his people to bring about good in the midst of. That darkness doesn't win the day, but God's given us power in his spirit to overcome it. See, there's power in the gospel. There's power in the gospel, and there's power in the proclamation of God's kingdom. Those of you that uh, watched the Grammys this year, you saw it. What? You did. You saw it. Uh, one of my favorite artists right now is a guy named Chance the Rapper, and uh, he's a Chicago-based rapper uh, who, uh, who won Best New Artist this year, uh, and he's a Christian. Uh, and, uh, I mean, admittedly, if you were to listen to his music, he's got some areas where he needs to grow in his discipleship, okay? is kind of how I'd put that. All right, we're all on a track. We're growing in different ways, okay? Uh, but, uh, but he is, and, and uh, you know, we believe in grace, right? So he, he proudly wears the name of Christ. Uh, and at the Grammys this year, uh, he performed a rendition, his rendition of How Great Is Our God. And he had a full gospel choir up there, and it was amazing, like just turned heads, uh, so much so that many of my non-Christian friends who, who watched the Grammys were like, text me, are like, Gabe, this is amazing. Like, is this what church is like? I was like, oh yeah, it's always like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, uh, and, uh, but, but, but it was awesome. And one of my friends, uh, she, she sent me this. She said this, uh, real talk, you know I don't do church much anymore, but there is no force in the world that can touch my heart like a gospel choir bringing church to a stage. There's just no denying an anointed voice. See, there's power in the gospel. There's power in the proclamation of God's kingdom. And yet what's amazing to me is at the end of this, verse 20, Jesus says, hey, that's all great. You've got power to trample over darkness, but that's nowhere near as important as that your names are written in heaven. That's the most important thing. See, the, the highest thing in life is not power. The greatest thing in life is not success, is not comfort. Jesus says the highest thing you could possibly have in this world is God's favor resting on you. Jesus says the highest thing in life you could have is to possess God's favor. And so how do we get that? Verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. See, there's this consistent theme throughout Jesus' teachings. And if you want to enter into God's kingdom, if you want to receive his favor, you've got to come like a little child. You gotta be like a little kid. Why? Kids, little kids, as Jesus says, little kids, don't have a confirmation bias, right? They trust. They're open. They're humble. 
This past Friday, uh, our worship director, Tanner, and I, uh, we, uh, we had a gig at an uh, elementary school in downtown Austin, and, um, and the school was, was kindergarten through eighth grade, and the school is attached to, uh, to a church, and this church is a, a much, much, much more traditional church than ours. And, uh, and so we're going in, and they asked us to play kind of the tunes we play here, and we're like, all right. Uh, but I knew kind of going into it, these kids aren't really going to know them, and so I was a little nervous, plus I hadn't played drums in a while, so I was like, I don't know how this is going to go. But I went in, and, and we set up, and we, we did our thing, and we set up our equipment. Uh, and as we got up to play, uh, all the teachers told the kids, I said, hey, go up front, go up front and listen to the band. Um, and so they did. Guess who was in the front row, very front row? They ran up there as fast as they could, were dancing and singing and clapping right off the bat. Guess who that was? Kindergartners, right? Kindergartners are up there just going crazy, time of their life. Guess who's in the back, arms crossed, really grumpy? Eighth graders, right? Eighth graders, way too cool for school, right? Some dorky pastor playing drums, no thanks, I'm out, right? But what was amazing and what was so funny to see is that these little kindergartners up front, they're the only ones moving at first, right? No one knows these songs, so they're not singing. But the kindergartners are just up there doing their thing and like having a good time. And you could just see the energy and the joy and the excitement move back from these little kids up here till all the way by the end of our set, there's these eighth graders just having a good old time back there singing along with us. And see, man, there's like little kids have this way about them, don't they? They just do. And Jesus says, he says, God wants us to come to him like his little children. Not arms crossed in the back of the room, right? But recognizing his love, recognizing his grace extended to us in Jesus Christ and receiving it with joy and living into it with joy. See, friends, this is life in the kingdom of God. This is what it's like to live in God's reign. It's to receive his message of peace that God, through Christ's blood shed on the cross, has made peace with you. It's to live into his message of reconciliation that God, in Jesus Christ, was reconciling the world to himself, meaning that you're at peace with God and you're at peace with other people. It means to receive his message of healing that there's no suffering, there's no wound, there's no darkness that you faced that God himself can't heal. And it means to receive his message of the presence of the kingdom of God that because Jesus rose from the grave that you have hope to live into that kingdom now and to realize it into eternity. It's a good thing. I just came uh, across the story of the, the British writer A.N. Wilson. And uh, A.N. Wilson just recently, like in the last couple of years, came to faith in Christ. Uh, and this was after years of skepticism. Years of skepticism and like, public critique of Christianity, published critique of Christianity, uh, and then he came back to faith, just kind of out of nowhere. And he was asked in an interview, you know, why, why'd you come back to faith? I thought you were done with all these Neanderthals. And, uh, and he said this, my own return to faith has surprised no one more than myself. Why did I return to it? My belief has come in large measure because of the lives and examples of people I have known. Not the famous, not saints, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in the light of the resurrection story or in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. And man, I just think of this story and I think of Jesus saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. But in this case, it didn't happen in grand gestures. 
didn't happen in miracles or powerful preaching, but it happened in the quiet lives of people faithfully living as children of his kingdom. And I think may we lead those sort of lives. May we bring that message. May we bring that power. May we bring that joy of the kingdom to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you that you've invited us to live in your kingdom, to live into the healing rule and reign of the Father. God, teach us to uh, experience that joy. Teach us to extend that peace and that healing and that presence. God, I pray for any of my friends today who are are figuring this out and, and wondering what it's all about. I pray that they would know your love. That they would know that you came for them. That there's peace with God through you, through the cross, and through the tomb. We celebrate that today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.